Support comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about new developments in pancreatic cancer research with Dr. Mundar Mazumdar. Dr. Mazumdar is an assistant professor of genetics and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So maybe we can start off by talking a little bit about pancreatic cancer. What is it? How common is it? Who gets it and why? So pancreatic cancer is cancer that originates in the pancreas. Uh, it accounts for about 3% of all cases of cancer in the United States. So that leads to about a little bit more than 50,000 new cases in the U.S. and more than 300,000 cases uh, worldwide. An important part of pancreatic cancer is that it, uh, it tends to be very aggressive at diagnosis, and more than 80% of patients are diagnosed at a stage where they cannot uh, undergo surgery for the disease. And so that leads to a very high uh, rate of death. So even though it's only 3% of all cancers in the United States, it accounts for about 7% of all deaths from cancer uh, in the United States. And then another important uh, part of pancreatic cancer is that unlike the other two major leading causes of cancer death in the United States, both lung and colorectal cancer, that have been decreasing in incidence and death rates uh, due to smoking cessation programs and uh, screening, pancreatic cancer is still on the rise. It's slowly and steadily been rising over the last decade. So why is that? I mean, you know, when we think about cancers increasing in incidence, Usually, that's because either we're increasing the risk factors causing that cancer, or we're getting better at picking it up and doing screening. Um, so what's the case in pancreatic cancer? So in pancreatic cancer, we haven't been as fortunate in terms of screening. It's often diagnosed at a very late stage, oftentimes because the symptoms are very vague, sometimes just a little bit of abdominal discomfort, uh, just a little bit of uh, feeling full very early. Um, and so we don't think that uh, we're catching new cases earlier. What we think is happening potentially is that the risk factors that contribute to pancreatic cancer are becoming more prevalent. And one of the important risk factors for pancreatic cancer is actually obesity. And we know that obesity is on the rise over the last uh, several decades, and that's concordantly risen uh, with the incidence of pancreatic cancer. And so, I mean, but obesity causes or is a risk factor for so many cancers, right? It's a risk factor for breast cancer and a variety of other cancers and certainly a risk factor for other bad diseases, heart attacks, strokes, etc. So how, how is it that obesity actually impacts pancreatic cancer? Do we know? So what we've learned from epidemiologic studies is that obesity is associated with an increased risk of developing pancreatic cancer, and it's also associated with an increased risk of having more aggressive or metastatic disease, a diagnosis. So it increases the risk of both uh, developing it, but also the degree and, and severity of the disease. Now, we don't understand the mechanism behind how that uh, works. One of the things that we've been very interested in trying to study is to, to study that particular aspect in the laboratory. 
And some of my research on pancreatic cancer actually focuses on trying to develop better models to understand how obesity contributes to pancreatic cancer development and how it might contribute to its growth and aggressiveness. And we've actually been using uh, mouse models that closely recapitulate, actually closely mimic the human disease in terms of how the cancer looks under a microscope, how it behaves in terms of how it metastasizes in response to therapy, and then in integrating different uh, modalities to try and make these mice obese. And what we've been starting to find in these mice is that uh, if you make them obese and give them uh, a genetic predisposition for pancreatic cancer, they get faster and more aggressive disease, similar to what's seen in humans. And it turns out if we can uh, make these mice lose weight aggressively very early on, we can actually get rid of that more aggressive disease and, and slow it down. And so we think that we have a model now in which we can study the mechanisms behind how obesity contributes to pancreatic cancer, hopes of hopefully identifying new uh, targets for therapy and prevention in the disease. So it sounds like there's an interaction there between obesity and this genetic predisposition. So if you had fat mice and they didn't have a genetic predisposition, do they get pancreatic cancer more than skinny mice without a genetic predisposition? So one of the things we know is one of the big risk factors which we cannot change for pancreatic cancer is age. Just having enough time for some mutations, we think, to accumulate. Our mice lifespan, the average lifespan of the mice we use in the laboratory is only two years, and so it's fairly short. So the mice that are obese don't develop, we think, those mutations within the, in, within the time span of their life. So we give them a little bit of push. We use genetic engineering to try and initiate uh, a specific mutation we know is very common in pancreatic cancer and then combine it with, uh, with an obesity model uh, in the mice as well. So that's really interesting. So in people, though, they've got age. At what age do people get pancreatic cancer on average? Yeah, so the median age of pancreatic cancer is in the late 60s uh, in, in people. And we know that uh, the incidence goes up with age. Um, so it, it really is age it seems to be an important risk factor for pancreatic cancer. And we think at least in, in, in some part is due to uh, the potential for the development of mutations that can help initiate or start up the disease. So the reason I ask that, of course, is because, you know, some people, they were obese as kids. Um, some people are obese as adults. And the finding that you had where if you get people to lose or get people, get mice to lose weight, um, then you can potentially kind of prevent them from getting pancreatic cancer or at least not get pancreatic cancer as quickly as they otherwise would with this genetic predisposition. So my question is, I was always a fat kid. So um, even though as an adult I've kind of lost weight, does that is that enough? Or if I gained weight again and lost weight right before my 60th birthday, would that prevent me from getting pancreatic cancer? I mean, is there is there a time continuum here that we need to look at? No, that's a really great question, which we don't have a great understanding from human epidemiologic studies. The nice thing about our mice is we can manipulate when they lose weight during the course of how tumors develop. And so that's one of the major things we're trying to study is if we can a delay when we, they lose weight, would that affect the ability for tumors to grow? And indeed, once tumors are fully established in these mice and we make them lose weight, they actually do not have any difference in the outcome uh, from pancreatic cancer. But we're trying to narrow down that window and find when is it, when is it really impacting the disease 
Um, and then we have to think about how that translates to human populations in terms of time. And we don't have a great understanding just yet. Our hope is that if we use the mice to identify mechanisms that are important, we can then start evaluating those mechanisms in human specimens and samples and patients. And then we can take that data and identify perhaps there is a time window where we can intervene uh, with this particular disease. Especially on the prevention side, I mean, what about if you took mice uh, and they were fat for a year out of their two-year lifespan versus mice who were obese for six months out of that two-year lifespan or a year and a half out of that two-year lifespan and all had this genetic predisposition at birth. Does it make a difference how long they were obese for? Yeah, so that's exactly what we're trying to test at this moment is if we can induce the weight loss at different time points earlier or later before before they they develop the full advanced tumors, can we actually have an impact on the disease? And what is that time course? And then the question is, after they already have a tumor, does losing weight at that point make the cancer less aggressive? I mean, is their outcome better if they lose weight? So one of the things we we see a lot in pancreatic cancer patients is that they often come to us with one of their prevailing symptoms being a significant amount of weight loss. And so that's going to be confounding how we view it, because weight loss in that case may actually be associated with the severity of their disease. One of the things we've noticed in the mice is if we make them lose weight once they are already starting to lose a little bit of weight from their disease, or at a time point where we know that they've developed quite a bit of disease, um, we don't really have an impact on outcome. And so we think late weight loss, once the disease is established, is likely not to have a significant effect on the outcome. But perhaps early weight loss as a preventative, or now we've been thinking uh, thinking about it in a different way, can we intercept how uh, cancers progress from early to late disease? Um, could that be a way of either preventing or intercepting the disease before it manifests into a very advanced tumor that we oftentimes have a very hard time treating? The other question is, what about the people who, like me, are kind of yo-yo people? You know, we're obese, and then we're not obese, and then we're obese again, and then we're not obese. How does that impact tumor development? That's a great question. One of the things we can really do easily in mice is we can make them lose weight and stay uh, stay lean, uh, which is sometimes very hard in, in, in humans. I, you know, We've all faced that same similar situation. We just got through the holidays. <laughs> we all have been there. That's right. And so what we're trying to do is trying to model that as well in the mice to see if, we, if there's a temporal correlation, if we can go up and down in terms of weight, and can we uh, see uh, you know, different effects in terms of is it still driving tumors? How long do they have to keep the weight off? Things like that. So those are all very important questions that we feel we now have a model to actually address. So this is all fascinating. But I guess my other question is there are so many other factors that potentially um, are etiologic or causative agents for pancreatic cancer. And I wonder how obesity plays into that. For example, does alcohol increase your risk of pancreatic cancer? And for anybody who was drinking over the holidays, my bet is that you put on a couple of pounds. So how does that work? Sure. There's a lot of risk factors that have been associated with pancreatic cancer, some of which are stronger than others. Alcohol, for example, has shown in some studies to be associated with an increased risk of pancreatic cancer and others, again, in epidemiologic studies, not showing that association. Now, there's a clear association between chronic inflammation in the pancreas Mm -hmm. and the development of pancreatic cancer, and we know that chronic alcohol Alcoholics, in some cases, can develop chronic inflammation of the pancreas 
uh, what's also known as chronic pancreatitis. And that is a well-established risk factor. So it may be that alcohol acts to promote pancreatic cancer development via its effects on the pancreas and creating inflammation. Um, there are other risk factors that have been associated as well. Smoking is another big one. Unfortunately, there have now been improvements in smoking cessation programs to really decrease that risk uh, compared to the obesity role. Um, and then there have been variable associations with blood type, with uh, race. Um, there's a slight predisposition for males over females. Um, many of these are clearly not modifiable. And so we've been really focusing on trying to identify whether modifiable factors such as obesity can actually alter the pathogenesis or the development of the disease. And we think at least now that we have a model to study that. So how does that work exactly? I mean, you alluded to the fact that your research is trying to identify this and identify biomarkers, et cetera. And I want to unpack that a little bit more. Is obesity causing inflammation kind of like a chronic pancreatitis, or is it acting via a different mechanism to cause pancreatic cancer? That's a great question. And so we look at the actual pancreases of these mice as they develop tumors. And what we do see is increased uh, evidence of inflammation in these, in these particular mice. And we think we, we, un we know some of the factors that actually specifically contribute to that and some of the factors that are involved in the inflammatory process itself. So what we're trying to do now is actually block those factors using drugs, um, collaborating with my colleagues here at Yale who are developing new, new therapies to try and test whether we can use that instead of weight loss as a way of intervening in the pancreas development, uh, pancreatic cancer development process. And that would potentially give us an alternative mechanism, potentially something that we can actually treat patients with as a preventative, as a treatment for pancreatic cancer. I'll tell you, a lot of people would rather take a drug to prevent inflammation than trying to lose weight. Well, I figured it's as just much. easier. <laughs> so, um, so the so what I want to do after we come back from a medical minute is really talk more about pancreatic cancer and obesity and some of the other factors that might play into this. I mean, we've all heard about obesity causing resistance to insulin. Well, where does insulin come from your pancreas? So does the, all of that work together for pancreatic cancer? If you're curious to know the answer to that, I am too. We're going to find out more right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about pancreatic cancer with my guest, Dr. Mandar Mazumdar. Support comes from AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, the return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
This is Dr. Anise Chagpar and my guest, Dr. Mandar Mazumdar. We're here talking about research advances for pancreatic cancer. Now, right before the break, I was curious, Mandar, about this whole concept of obesity and insulin-related growth factor. I mean, we all hear about these things and insulin resistance. Does that have anything to do with pancreatic cancer or is that just unrelated? So one of the things we know is that obese individuals oftentimes demonstrate insulin resistance, and you can actually tease some of these different factors out when you in epidemiologic studies by looking at certain blood markers of insulin resistance, for example. And what we do see is that there is an association of increased insulin resistance um, or diabetes uh, with the development of pancreatic cancer, and it seems to be uh, potentially contributing to with how obesity um, contributes to pancreatic cancer development. Now, we, we think that some of the factors, like you've alluded to, potentially insulin-like growth factor or insulin itself could actually be a driver of pancreatic cancer development, um, but we don't have specific evidence that that's true in the disease, and again, we're using our models to try and unravel that particular aspect of, of obesity and, and insulin resistance. Interesting. So the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is you said that you can genetically predispose these mice to get cancer. Well, if you can genetically predispose them to get cancer, then you know of genes that can be turned on that make cancer. So do we know what those genes are? Do they exist in humans? And if so, can we turn them off? That's a great question. And so one of the things that we've really learned a lot about cancer in general over the last 10 to 20 years is that cancer in many uh, facets is really a genetic disease. It's really due to mutations in specific genes in our own normal cells that now make them inappropriately active or inappropriately inactive. And so we call those uh, oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes. And in pancreatic cancer, there are four hallmark genes that are mutated. The predominant mutation in an oncogene, something that gets activated, is uh, in pancreatic cancer is KRAS, and it's actually mutated in more than 90% of cases of pancreatic cancer. Wow. And so it is one of the uh, most common mutations uh, found in a particular cancer type if you look at all cancers. And in fact, KRAS mutations is actually uh, the most frequently, KRAS is actually the most frequently mutated oncogene in all of cancers, about 20 to 25%. But if we can un understand the biology about how KRAS um, contributes to pancreatic cancer development and how it's maintained, we think we might get some further insight in terms of how KRAS actually contributes to many different cancer types. So what we do in the mice is actually engineer them to have KRAS mutations that are specifically expressed in the pancreas. And interestingly enough, these mice get pancreatic cancer that looks and behaves like human pancreatic cancer. And that was really an important finding because it really suggested that there was a causality between the presence of these particular mutations at high frequency in the disease and their ability to actually start, start up tumors and generate tumors. Now, what we've been interested in now is since it's such an important and, and prevalent mutation, this disease, is how does it actually make tumors, tumors? And how does it potentially maintain tumors? It's really the major gene that's mutated that we think is potentially active. So if we could inactivate it, would it be a great target to, to, to develop therapies for? The unfortunate thing is KRAS has been uh, you know, one of the holy grails of, of uh, proteins that we really wanted to block. We've known about RAS mutations for more than 30 years. We've never been able to actually develop really effective inhibitors. 
that there's a renewed effort from the National Cancer Institute and many uh, private investment firms to try and actually develop new KRAS inhibitors using uh, improved technology. And so we've taken a, an approach to try and understand whether KRAS is really important for maintaining pancreatic cancer cells using genetic tools that we have developed. And so we can actually use advances in genome editing to completely ablate KRAS in pancreatic cancer cells. Now, unfortunately, when we do that, we actually see that about 50% of pancreatic cancer cells actually survive in the complete absence of any KRAS being made. So suggests that resistance is, even, is likely to develop even if we had KRAS inhibitors in at least about half of the tumors. The nice thing is we can now study how those cells resist KRAS mutations, what maintains their growth once KRAS is gone. And it turns out that most of them resist in the same uh, mechanism, and so we have another inhibitor that we can add on to develop combination therapeutics. The other thing that this now allows us to do is really study KRAS biology in great detail because now we have cells that have KRAS and those that don't that came from the cells that had KRAS. So we can see what's different about the cells. What's the different about their behavior? What's different about the genes that are expressed? What differences are there in the proteins that are actually present? And can we now harness those differences for to understand new pathways that KRAS is directing that we can actually target and treat with? It does, doesn't mean we have to inhibit KRAS, which has proved challenging, but perhaps we can uh, directly inhibit something that KRAS has been regulated or uh, some uh, particular state that KRAS has generated in the cancer cells. And we think that's a particularly attractive uh, view because most all of our other cells besides pancreatic cancer should have normal KRAS. So if we can identify particular features that are, are generated by mutant form of KRAS in the cell that now we can target, we would get a drug that's specific for the cancer cells while saving and salvaging all the normal cells in our body, hopefully decreasing the number of side effects that we see. So so KRAS is a, a gene that is in all the cells of your body. And when it is mutated, it increases your risk of developing cancer. But you've been able to use genome editing, at least in mice, to turn this, to create a mutation. So my question is, even before people get cancer, is there a way to look to see if they have a mutation that maybe they were born with and turn it off? Yeah, so there are certain uh, forms of pancreatic cancer, about 10% that run in families. And we know at least a subset of those, those particular genes that are associated with it. And they seem to be associated with particular genes that are involved in repairing the DNA, so making sure there's no mistakes that lead to mutation. KRAS is an interesting mutation because it's not something you're born with, but develops in sporadic cells in your body at some point later during time. And it turns out that not all cells that have KRAS mutations will actually develop cancer. And we think other things may feed into that. For example, perhaps inflammation from the obesity that's now in mice that have KRAS mutations drives the development of pancreatic cancer. And so we, uh, we can certainly look for mutations in, that run in families because we think they're actually inherited. And so you can look at a normal blood, uh, blood cells and look whether those blood cells carry the same mutation. They should be found throughout your body. But certain mutations like KRAS and the three other hallmark mutations that are, that are found in pancreatic cancer are oftentimes mutations that are developed as the cancer uh, grows or, or develops. 
One of the other things that we know is some of these particular familial types of cancers with particular mutations um, can actually underlie specific sensitivities. So these cancer cells now no longer as good at repairing their DNA. Mm. We know that some of our chemotherapeutics damage DNA in certain ways that perhaps they can't repair as well. And so we're starting to take advantage of this genome technology in trying to profile the genetics of the tumors to try and... uh, to try and take the arsenal of tools we have already, such as certain chemotherapeutics, and apply them in specific populations and hopefully improve the outcomes in therapy. So what you're talking about is looking at people who have a KRAS mutation in, say, a sporadic pancreatic cancer. And you'll be able to tell that because on a biopsy you can look for KRAS mutations. And then because you know that they're not going to respond or they're not going to repair their DNA as well, then you can hit them with a chemotherapeutic agent that causes them to knock out their DNA. Correct. And so what we we are trying to do more and more now is actually profile not just KRAS mutations, which, like I said, more than 90% of the tumors will have, but look for other mutations such as DNA repair mutations that may suggest that they are now going to be sensitive to particular types of chemotherapy. And it actually gets a little bit more sophisticated than that in that it's not just mutation that seems to matter. We can also look at what genes are actually present or expressed by the particular cancer cells. And it turns out that you can look at uh, cancer cells that have mutations, particular DNA repair pathways, and they express certain set of genes. And you can look at pancreatic cancers that all, for the most part, have KRAS mutations, but don't have mutations in specific DNA repair pathways, but they express the same genes as if they did have a mutation in a particular DNA repair. And those cancers may also be potentially, uh, may also be a biomarker to predict who's going to respond to these particular types of chemotherapies. So is there, I mean, when we think about preventing cancers, I mean, it's great that we can now say, oh, you've got a KRAS mutation or you've got a DNA mismatch repair mutation. You know, we know that drug X is going to be better for you or, or not. But what about really thinking about preventing these cancers? I mean, the idea that obesity may kind of trigger this and interact with KRAS is interesting. But what if you could look at whether somebody has inflammation in their pancreas, has a KRAS mutation without a tumor, and is obese? Is there a way to do that, or do you always have to see the mutation in a tumor? Yeah, so we've actually had quite a bit of a renaissance in terms of looking at mutations and other features of organs without actually going and sampling and taking a biopsy of the organ, particularly in the case of pancreas, which is actually quite hard to get a good biopsy without causing significant amount of inflammation by itself. But we can now look in the bloodstream, for example, for gene mutations such as KRAS um, in circulating DNA that's just being spit out by different cells in the body. It turns out a lot of our own cells will do that. It turns out cancer cells tend to do it a little bit more across cancer types. Now, the problem with KRAS mutation is, as I suggested earlier, is KRAS is mutated in many different cancer types. So if you find it in the blood, you don't know whether it's actually which organ it necessarily is coming from. Additionally, you don't know whether they actually have cancer because they may have KRAS mutations without cancer, but they may be the people that you screen a little bit more aggressively. You look for pancreatic cancer more. Uh, the, the lifetime risk of pan- developing pancreatic cancer is 1.5%, which means 1 in 65 people will develop the disease. And that increases, again, if you have certain risk factors like family history or obesity and things like that. But we don't have a 
very careful. We don't always know who to screen. We don't know in who is actually at the highest risk. And it's possible that some of these bloodborne markers, as they become uh, better developed and tested, may give us some insight in terms of who are the people we need to screen and perhaps who are the people we need to give these chemopreventative agents that we're trying to identify and hopefully uh, deliver. And then we can be able to then, when we do our clinical trials, to validate them, uh, identify the, the people who are most likely to benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there might be people in our audience who are thinking, you can look at my blood and you can see circulating DNA and you can see whether that DNA has a KRAS mutation. And you've just told me that KRAS mutations predispose to all kinds of cancers, which are bad. It doesn't matter whether it's pancreatic, which is really, really bad, or breast, which is a little bit bad, but cancer in general is bad. And so if we are then able to turn that KRAS off, either through genetic engineering or through lifestyle factors like reducing uh, body weight, maybe that's something we ought to do regardless. I mean, how good is this DNA, circulating DNA testing uh, in terms of predicting this? Um, and is it something that people should be going to their local family doctor once a year and saying, so how's my circulating DNA? That's a great question. One of the things that we've, uh, we've developed over the years is better sensitivity to pick up DNA. So we can identify DNA in the blood at, at lower and lower levels. The problem is that it's also less specific. So it can come from many different places, and it can even come from tissues that are never going to develop cancer, pancreatic cancer. For example, you may develop a KRAS mutation in your pancreas, but it's possible that an immune cell that's circulating around in your pancreas says, well, this is a funny-looking cell. I don't think it should be here, and it's going to kill it before it actually causes any cancer. So it becomes a little bit of a tricky slope. If you keep screening, you'll find things. The problem is you may find things that were never going to cause problems in the first place, and then you'll go fishing and, and hunting for things that, that, that maybe you shouldn't have in the first place. And this has been the issue with other screening modalities, such as uh, prostate-specific antigen or PSA and prostate cancer. Um, and so I think we, that we don't know enough in terms of the specificity. We, we think we can now become more sensitive in terms of our methodology in identifying the DNA. But we don't have enough knowledge at this point to say it, this particular identification of this mutation is going to be specific for this disease. Now, it may be that down the road we are able to get to that, or it, it's not going to just be one biomarker one DNA mutation, but maybe it's a bunch of proteins that we look at at the same time. I think as we start to put things together, we'll hopefully be able to, to uh, improve our ability to predict risk, then identify the patients who need to be screened, and then hopefully take advantage of some of the chemopreventative type uh, methodologies that we're trying to develop and test in our mouse models to then apply to that specific patient population. Dr. Mundar Mazumdar is an assistant professor of genetics and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.